1: Now, here's your host, Joe Lynch.
0: Hello, friends. Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. Today's topic is how nuclear verdicts are killing the trucking business with Quinn Damon. Welcome, Quinn.
1: Morning, Joe. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much, Quinn.
0: This is a great topic, not a happy topic by any means, but a great topic for us to talk about today. So, Quinn, please introduce yourself and your company and where you are located.
1: My name is Quinn Damon. I'm a vice president with the Lockton Companies. We're a global risk management and insurance brokerage firm globally headquartered in Kansas City, but I am located in downtown Detroit, Michigan. Nice, nice. So Quinn, how long have you been with Lockton? I've been with Lockton for going on about 10 years now. It was my first job out of college. Okay, tell us a little bit about you and your background. Where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to school? Yes, I'm originally from Kansas City, born and raised. From there, I went to the University of Missouri and majored in finance. Coming out of school was kind of in the midst of the Great Recession. And so finance industry didn't actually look that appealing and got an internship with Lockton in Kansas City. Like I said, that's their global headquarters with over a thousand employees. So it's, you know, if you grew up there, you know about them. And I fell in love with the company and the industry itself. So was in Kansas City my whole career and then was asked to move to Detroit in January in order to open up our new brick-and-mortar operation up here in Michigan. Nice, nice,
0: guys. We got a lot of trucks up here. We could use your help. Yes, you do. Uh, <laughs> so you got right out of school. You went to Lockton, and it's been where you've been for the last 10 years. Yep, I drink the Kool-Aid. <laughs> yeah, that's great. So before we go too far into this, today's topic is nuclear verdicts are killing the trucking business. And I think everybody's heard about them, but please define that for us. What is a nuclear verdict?
1: Yeah. So when we're talking about a nuclear verdict, typically, and where the definition is coming from, that means an award of five or $10 million, depending on the barrier there and above. So again, claims where the verdict comes back typically in excess of $5 million.
0: So why are we starting to hear so much more about nuclear verdicts now? I mean, I'm sure they've been there in the past, but is it a growing problem?
1: Yeah, that's a good question, Joe. And I don't think it's so much the existence of them is new. It's more of the frequency of these nuclear verdicts is what has taken off in the last decade. Why is that? Well, we've seen a couple of things. Two big reasons, I would say, is you've had a major shift in the social environment in America. And so any of these verdicts we're talking about, right, come from a jury and you've seen a shift of generational influence where now we're seeing more millennials serve on juries, and they have a different outlook in regards to social responsibility than perhaps baby boomers have historically or Gen X. I think that's taking more of a blaming the companies versus John Doe way more than maybe historically. In addition to that, you've had a huge increase in third-party litigation funding firms. These are essentially hedge funds that go out and front capital two cases. And their goal is to maybe historically a bodily injury claim would get settled out of court. These hedge funds are going to the claimants and the law firms and saying, we'll help fund this thing all the way. We just want a percentage of the winnings on the back end. So you're seeing, yeah, yeah. yeah. Way more cases going to trial. And of course, attorneys are never going to turn down work.
0: Yeah. And I, Quinn, when we were talking about this offline, I mentioned that you can't go to any major city when, when you're driving around or watching their TVs. You see those giant billboards or commercials, and it's always guys talking about personal injuries. Have you slipped and fall? Have you been hit by a car? Has this happened? Did you get hurt at work? And, you know, I think people are entitled. Obviously, I think we all believe that if you're, if somebody's negligent and hurts you, you're entitled to money. But the idea that there's a big funding industry out there, uh, It feels like a little much, but I guess at the same time, I wouldn't want somebody who was legitimately hurt not to get their due. Sure, because they because some insurance company had more money than them. Strange times. (laughs) So. Yeah, I think, again, every major city that when you're in a hotel room, you right away know who is the local personal injury lawyers who are in town.
1: Right. <laughs> and to your comment, Joe, you know, the origin of third party litigation funding came from a, to your comment, good, a place intending to do good, right? Maybe give some folks an opportunity that couldn't afford litigation. But like anything, if people see an opportunity to profit, then sometimes it can be taken advantage of. Yeah,
0: yeah. And when you talk about the huge verdicts, I mean, these are the verdicts that it's going to get lawyers, you know, some of the best lawyers are going to say, hey, I'm going to get on that case because there's going to be an enormous payout and my piece of the action is going to be pretty big. Exactly. So talk a little bit about some other things that are causing this problem.
1: So yeah, as far as it pertains to motor vehicle incidents, and it just got released the other day, you know, the National Law Journal does a report of the top 100 verdicts by year. And if you look at 2018, motor vehicle origin verdicts was ranked sixth at about $900 million in total awards. Just a year later in 2019, it moved up to number three at roughly 2.2 billion. So that's a huge jump. And it's, we've continued to see that the last five, seven years. So I think what we're seeing, and this is even outside of just the trucking industry, you know, the last 10 years we've had a growing economy. At the same time, we've had fuel prices come down. So we're seeing more and more folks on the road in general. And then to add to that mix, the advent of the iPhone really in the late aughts, and now it's more commonplace. So you've got an all-time high amount of drivers, low fuel, good economy, and you've got distracted driving, which is creating more fatality, injury accidents, bad bodily injury cases, which are leading to, again, not just the nuclear verdicts are new, but we're seeing more and more of them. And so I think you've got kind of this perfect storm of more accidents happening on the road to begin with. And then other external factors then coming into play, seeing more of those go the distance in trial.
0: Yep, yep. And, you know, you mentioned the iPhones, and that's leading to distracted driving. And I think, I don't know to what extent that is a problem with trucking companies, but I know a big problem it is for just consumers. I'm always surprised. You notice more at night when you're driving on the expressway, you'll see a car. And I used to think, oh, that guy's drunk. That guy's drunk. He's swerving. And then when you pass, you'll see they're on the phone. And it's always just a shock. And I guess I've grabbed my phone before. I normally catch myself and don't look at it. But if I was to be completely honest, I've been distracted before. And, you know, it, it is a killer. So sure, we've got to find a way. And, and and phones are like our crack now. I mean, we're so accustomed to just grabbing that phone. It's like a security blanket. And imagine that's a problem for drivers who are on the road all day even more so. Hopefully they're more disciplined than the rest of
1: us. No, you're you're totally right. And you're right to point out, too, it's not so much that distracted driving within the trucking industry, but if all the cars around you are paying attention, right, even if they're not at fault, if there's cases where maybe they had both hands on the wheel, maybe you can avoid some of these incidents that we've seen in the last decade.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think the first nuclear verdict I was reading up on this topic and I read the, that the first nuclear verdict was that lady who spilled hot coffee from McDonald's on herself and scalded herself. And I remember it was kind of in the national press for a while. Everybody talked about it. You had, you know, talk shows and comedians and news shows. Everyone was talking about this lady who got a ton of money from McDonald's for this verse spilling coffee. And ever since we've heard. To big, big payouts for different things. And, and now it's come to trucking. And it's a real problem because what I've, over the last few years, when you look, I, I get freight waves in my email, it's always seems like another big established trucking company is going under. And my sense of it, and maybe you could speak to this, is that they wanted to get the proper amount of insurance, but said, hey, if I pay that much for insurance and my margin is this, I'm no longer going to stay in business. And they might have some the personal assets or the firm might have assets that they say, hey, if we get sued beyond, you know, we get that nuclear verdict. When we get done with our insurance, they're going to come after us personally or the, or the firm. On the other hand, I think there's probably other smaller trucking companies that say, give me the minimum because I don't have anything. Yeah,
1: that's a great point, Jill. I'll cite a stat here from the American Transportation Research Institute. They looked at trucking litigation claims over the last 14 years, and they looked at about 600 cases. And so if you looked at the first five years of that data set, they found only 26 cases that, you know, the award was over a million dollars. In that same study, if you look at the last five years trailing from today, they found over 300 cases. So obviously, as we're seeing more of these damages, that's going to then translate directly to the insurance community. And to your comment, we're seeing it on both sides for your larger firms that maybe are typically buying 50, 100 million dollars of limits. The cost to buy those limits has just gotten so astronomical it doesn't make sense. So they're buying less, which to your case then leaves them more vulnerable. But the bigger, tougher squeeze is maybe under smaller firms that are under 50 power units, maybe even 5 or 10 units. Just their cost for that first million dollars of minimum coverage has doubled in the last couple of years. And to your point, it's right. I mean, that's one of their biggest operating costs and it's only going up right now
0: yeah that's crazy that's that's the same. so we've seen firms that have double the insurance, and then if margins go down at all and we've you know they're pretty good now, I imagine for the firms that are driving, but I know there's some trucks on the side of the road these days, but that's awful and this again it's these costs are all they are all bore by all of us when trucking costs go up because of this insurance, then prices of goods go up i mean there's Definitely. no uh there's no free lunch here no no the the dollar's got to come from somebody and I know we had this offline conversation is talk about the margins for insurance companies. Cause I know this from, I always have been a big fan of Warren Buffett. I always read that there wasn't a ton of money in the insurance business. And really it was the money that he made came from managing the money that was under management.
1: Yeah, that's a good point, Joe. And and so, okay, I, you know, our premiums are going up from the verdicts themselves. I think another thing to take into account is how an insurance company makes money to begin with. So historically, the thesis for property casualty insurance carriers, you know, if for every dollar of premium they collect, they're basically breaking even after they pay out claims and their own expenses and overhead, right? So that's called a combined ratio. And that typically, they're underwriting to make that a break-even amount. Where they make the money is investment income on the premium, because they collect the premium dollars year one, and they may not pay out all of the claims till year three or five. Well, like everything we're watching right now, the yield on bonds and interest rate being at zero right now, the investment returns for the carriers has really plummeted the last 10 years. So you have this perfect storm of decreasing investment income running parallel with a massive increase in claim volume and severity. Again, it ultimately is going to hurt the end user, which is both our large and small trucking clients, which their premiums are going up and capacity is shrinking.
0: Yeah, that's crazy. And you know, you're, uh, <laughs> trying to make that money in the stock market. I understand that I was just thinking about it as you were saying that my mom, who's in her eighties, was in a car accident for the first time. I don't think she's ever had to collect from insurance until she was in her eighties. I was thinking she's been driving quite a, quite a long time. So hopefully they made some money on the money that she paid in premiums because they paid out. So. Anyway, what can companies do to protect themselves? What can trucking companies, and before I even ask that question, is this also impacting brokers and, and 3PLs?
1: Yeah, it's impacting everybody. Obviously not as direct, right, if you're not actually operating the vehicle, but everything is going upstream in some capacity. And I'd say for those firms, it's more so going to impact their excess liability placements. Again, the entire macro market is taking a hit across the board. So
0: would a broker get sued in one of these, you know, potential, so they picked that they worked with the trucking company, is the broker getting sued and added to that lawsuit or the 3PL?
1: They could be, right? Any good lawyer is going to keep digging for pockets and it's always a potential. And so for the 3PLs, for the brokerage firms, they'll want to make sure that they're looking at contingent or broker's liability to help protect them in that event. Now that's obviously a tougher line to draw than just the actual operator, but it is a potential risk to consider. So is that insurance going up too? Yes, it is.
0: Jeez, oh, Pete. So what can companies do, trucking companies do, to protect themselves from the nuclear verdicts? And again, I probably should have so, said so this at the beginning. We recognize when somebody's collecting on a nuclear verdict, they didn't want to collect that money. They were in some horrific accident. and right. <laughs> That's the underlying awful news about all this. And I want people to get paid for their damage. So, But what can trucking companies do to avoid these accidents and these nuclear verdicts?
1: It's a great question. And so when we consult on this, really when you're thinking about it, the claims that see that kind of award volume right, of the nuclear size, they're going to have to prove gross negligence, something so above and beyond that's so egregious that an example has to be made here, right? Or punitive damages have to be awarded here. So the best thing that an operator can do is every day in their safety and vehicle maintenance, is do everything best in class to the point of if today was the day I had to stand before a jury and talk about everything I do to prevent the worst case scenario, if I'm doing all of the right things, then it's going to be a lot harder for them to prove gross negligence. So if you look at it from their standpoint, an attorney is going to look for five main factors to drive up a claim. And the common themes we see are driver fatigue, distracted driving, driving under the influence, poor equipment maintenance, Or having an inexperienced or poorly trained driver. If they can pull one of those levers, they're going to have a better chance at pushing a gross negligence issue.
0: Walk through those again with us and elaborate on each one of those points if you don't mind.
1: Yeah, yeah, sure. So driver fatigue. If there's a claim where they can show that, you know, the driver had gone over his maximum driving. Limits, hours of
0: service, yeah.
1: Hours of service. If he was one hour over and then the claim happened, they've got something to pull on there, right? Why did he do that? Why did his management not instruct him to never do those kind of things? What kind of protocols did they or did they not have in place to prevent that from happening? Okay. Distracted driving, that's pretty self-explanatory, right? Cell phone usage, some sort of device while operating the vehicle. Again, driving under the influence, probably one of the more rare of the five, but it happens. And again, that's pretty self-explanatory. For equipment maintenance. So having a best-in-class equipment maintenance program to make sure that before the vehicle hits the road, everything has been checked and verified to be working properly. And so if there's a claim and they can point to vehicle maintenance being the issue, and then they can go back to see that, well, hey, they haven't really been doing the maintenance log checks that they have been doing, that then is what could have caused this claim. And then the last one is inexperienced or poorly trained drivers. You know What's the hiring standards of your firm? Are you doing background checks? How often are you running MVRs? Are you giving your employees the proper training to avoid these instances? So if an attorney can point to a situation where it's an incredibly inexperienced driver that really wasn't given any training, they're now going to paint the driver as the victim as well and really point at the company. You put this person in a really bad situation that they should never have been in.
0: Yep. And I think to your point you call them levers that they can pull. If let's just say it's really not clear what caused this accident or you know, what maybe the truck driver was to blame, maybe the driver who was injured was to blame. If you can go back and point out that yeah, they don't follow the rules, those five things you mentioned, it just looks bad. Right? The case they're making is I'm gonna paint the picture of this really negligent organization that didn't take the proper care, they're probably to blame, right? Exactly.
1: So, you know, and I list those five things to go back to your other question, okay, what can I do to prevent this is make sure you do everything best in class from a driver safety training standpoint, your hiring practices, whatever the FMCSA regulations are, go above and beyond. Have a best in class vehicle maintenance program. And one other thing to consider that we're seeing more and more of is the utilization of cameras. Over the years, we've seen more and more operators put those into place. And the external cameras are great. One camera that's probably more debated than most is the internal cab camera. I've heard arguments both ways, but one way to look at it is if you have video recording of every square inch of the vehicle and something happens, if the trucking company is truly not at fault and you have the evidence, that makes your case a lot easier. Because if there's ever going to be gray area or a jump ball, that's going to be left to the jury to decide. And like we talked about earlier, they're not going to be assuming that the big, bad trucking company, they're not going to give them any leniency in that regard.
0: Right. So the inward facing, so that's facing the driver and the cab. Is that the concern because the driver just says, Hey, this is invading my privacy, or what's the concern about the inward facing?
1: Yeah, Look, it, well, like anything, right? All these things I'm listing, I mean, let's address the elephant in the room. There's a cost to it, right? It's going to eat away at some margin to implement these things. That It's a cost to run these cameras. That's number one. Number two, to your point, yeah, it's a big cultural shift in the industry to talk to your drivers about, hey, there's going to be a camera in the cab now. Some can be equipped to only turn on if certain metrics are hit within the operation of the vehicle, you know, hard braking, speeding, whatever it may be. But that's where it takes a really good communication strategy from management to explain why it's in the best interest of the drivers. Because, again, if, God forbid, something happens, whether you're truly at fault or not at fault, it's a lot better to know right away and know all the evidence before you even get to the point of trial. Right.
0: I was at a trucking company not so long ago, and we were in there. I was at one of their terminals, and uh, you could see in the cab of all the trucks. So as I was watching it, all I could think about, if I was in that truck, I'd be singing along with the radio, and they'd watching and going, look at this dumbass. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I'd probably be doing the same thing.
0: <laughs> anyway, so you've got to get this best in class safety training for your people and also make sure you got that vehicle maintenance. And I would say most companies are probably doing all those things. And I think there's also another piece, which is the documentation that you can prove that you were doing all these things. It's often the nature of all businesses. We get a little sloppy with the documentation. So you want to be able to prove that you did the training, prove that, you know, we did all of these processes and that they were all done correctly.
1: Absolutely. Joe, that's a great point. And part of that too is whatever policies you have in place for driver violations or incidents, if it's in writing, you better make sure you're executing on it as well, right? To prove that we do take these seriously. And if someone yeah. does have a violation, we have a correlating disciplinary action, whether that's additional training, time off, whatever it may be. So I would encourage operators out there, you know, look at your CSA scores because that's what On the insurance front, that's what an underwriter is going to look at, first and foremost, to look at how do you score. But that, again, can be used against you in the event of a bad claim. If you've got really bad historical scores on all these fronts, that's just going to point to a negligent operator in the eyes of the jury. We just got past driver appreciation week and more and more firms are, and it's not shouldn't
0: be just a one week thing, right? So it's a real challenge in the industry is trying to upgrade the lifestyle of a truck driver. More and more people don't want to go into that. And there's always this driver shortage as a constant because it's a tough life. And I know a lot of firms are working on the quality of the lifestyle that these guys have. And I think part of that is, making sure that they can get home every night if at all possible. So you have more companies, do the 3PLs and the trucking companies themselves, doing relays and ways that they can make sure that driver is well-rested, is able to stay healthy. You know, <laughs> if you've ever driven eight hours, like if you drive back down to Kansas City, you know how long and how hard that is. These guys do that every day. I feel like I got beat up when I drive that far.
1: Yeah, no, I'm in the same boat. I have a ton of respect for the folks that do that work. And to your point, I've made that drive now a handful of times this year, and it's grueling. Yeah, we have to find ways just to keep, I know
0: how I am. I just want to sleep in my own bed. <laughs> these guys, if you're a truck driver, there's guys who sleep in their cabs, and I can't envision that they're always getting a good night's rest. And so that's just one of those little things that makes life a little easier. And I to, again, I think a lot of these nuclear verdicts aren't re- necessarily related to them being not rested, but I think you can get better drivers if you're treating them better, which means fewer accidents, fewer nuclear verdicts. So what can, talk a little bit about the insurance company. What can I do as a trucking company or as a broker? to minimize the nuclear verdict.
1: Yeah, so again, I think it just goes back to thinking about those five instances that could lead you to a large claim, right? If it got to trial and making sure that every day you're operating, you're doing a best in class job of the driver, safety training, the vehicle maintenance, and to your point, you're recording all of those things. And just as if you'd be defending yourself in a claim, the way the insurance market is right now for the trucking industry and everyone listening to this podcast is they've seen it for the last three to five years. This isn't new, but it's continuing to escalate. And so you've got to think these are all the same things that underwriters are looking at at your renewal. And so it's an investment cost. Totally appreciate that. But it could pay dividends on the back end of getting some of these underwriters more comfortable to maybe write your risk at a better rate than they had previously or even offering terms, or maybe previously they hadn't. Yeah, what we're describing, and I can say
0: this, put my broker 3PL hat on for a minute. Sometimes when you're chasing, you know, new business, you're doing it based on price. And I've been down this road before where you can't find a carrier for that load because nobody wants it at that price. And then you finally find somebody. And my sense is always the same is they've got older equipment, they're taking that cheaper price for a reason. And I sometimes think to myself is the challenge that we're all in is always kind of keeping that price down and making sure the trucks are the right, but there's always that balance, right? So I go with the guy who's a little cheaper, but maybe he's not able to maintain his trucks at the right level or do all the training that he wants to do because he's on the lower end of the margin himself. So that's an ongoing problem we're going to have to address in this industry.
1: Absolutely, Joe. I mean, you're spot on. And it's not, all the things I'm talking about aren't just a snap of the finger. Oh, oh, that's hard. It's hard. It's very hard. And it requires, for in some cases, a massive cultural shift. So for the 3PL folks and the brokers, yeah, that's tough, right? At the end of the day, we're a capitalist society and price is very important. So sometimes you have to make decisions that are tough in that regard. And maybe you sacrifice one side for the other. Yeah, we
0: got to make the right decisions there. So Quinn, please summarize this topic for us.
1: So, I'd say in summary, here's what to think about, right? We have this changing cultural shift in America socially in regards to how the future majority of our population views social responsibility in light of corporations. I think, again, social media, you're just continuing to see this. People expect more from corporations from a social responsibility standpoint. How that impacts the trucking industry is a direct correlation with these nuclear verdicts. We're seeing juries really looking at the trucking companies as, for lack of better terms, the bad guys, in air quotes, right? And they need to pay more. So it's creating a tougher environment for trucking operators. It's putting them more at risk of some of these fatality claims can get large, which then in translation is going to increase the insurance costs and availability of insurance, which I'm sure all the listeners right now have already experienced. So the biggest takeaway is it's an incredibly harsh environment we're in right now. And until we see some legislation change, I don't see it changing anytime soon. And so the best things you can do is what we talked about as far as preparing your firm for that potential worst case scenario and by doing it every day with driver safety training, good policies on hiring and recording the documentation of everything you're doing, a good vehicle maintenance program and building a culture around where that is important to not only the management, but to every single driver. Yep. And I think Quinn, if I could add
0: something for all the 3PLs and brokers, it's making sure you're working with companies that do that. And again, I think in what can happen is if somebody's trying to cut corners and to reduce costs, which I fully understand, they put themselves at risk, but they're putting also the industry and the, the potentially their 3PL and broker partners. And of course, all this means the other side of it is you potentially cost somebody their life or great bodily harm. Absolutely. So. Quinn, this is great. I appreciate you talking about this. Before we go, please tell us a little bit what's going on over at Lockton.
1: Yeah, thanks for asking. So Lockton, we're actually the largest family-owned global insurance broker in the world, headquartered in Kansas City. And as I mentioned, we have one of the largest transportation practices in the country. So we work with firms from California to New York, Florida, and everywhere in between. And a lot of our conversations with clients now, as you can imagine, based on the last 30 minutes of conversation, have been tough. But we're utilizing a lot of techniques as it relates to the insurance aspect of it, of, okay, we're in a very tough environment. Here's what we're facing. What can we do about it? And so those things I talked about earlier, of the best things you can do to help in case of defense, we have consultants on staff that help firms build out those programs and systems. At the same time, on the negotiating front, we're really utilizing data analytics and reinsurance capabilities to help buy that insurance as cheap as possible, which again, it's a tall task right now, but we have incredible professionals that all they do is work in the transportation space, and they're there to help our clients navigate those waters. Nice, nice. And what you described
0: there, the reinsurance in particular, before we go, talk about what is reinsurance?
1: Yeah, good question. So I like using a quick, easy example. If ABC Trucking is paying $100,000 for their liability insurance, a lot of times the carrier that they're paying the 100000 to is going off and buying reinsurance for a portion of the limit. So if you're paying $100,000 for $10 million of insurance, the first carrier you're paying is probably buying a reinsurance policy on the second $5 million of that $10 million tower. When you say carrier, you mean the insurance carrier. Yeah, I'm sorry, the insurance carrier, that's correct. So of the $100,000 the customer is paying 30,000 of that may just be a pass-through cost to pay for the premium for the reinsurance. So what Lockton has started doing is we actually have our own reinsurance arm where we will go help negotiate and find the cheapest reinsurance available. And our folks go to markets in Asia, Europe, Bermuda, and everywhere in between. And so again, keeping a, trying to keep something complex simple, If your current quote, the reinsurance built into that is 30 grand, maybe we can go find it for 10. And that lowers your overall cost from $100,000 to $80,000.
0: Nice, nice. It sounds like you're getting creative, which is what's needed to keep these companies in business because we all read it. It seems like every few weeks, some big carrier goes under here. And I don't mean insurance carrier, I mean trucking carrier. So Quinn, thank you so much for uh, educating us on the nuclear verdicts today.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me, Joe. I really enjoyed the conversation and hope it's helpful to the folks listening. Yep,
0: what I'll do is I'll put a link to your LinkedIn profile and also a link to Locked In and for anyone who wants to reach out to Quinn. And until next time, thank you very much and onward and upward.